You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, I typically preach up a sweat anyway, and I've been standing in warm water now for about 10 to 15 minutes back there. So um, if you see me doing a lot of wiping today, no, I don't have a fever. Um, No, I'm not contagious. Uh, It just means that my uh, umption has been accelerated by standing in that warm water back there. But it's worth every drop of sweat to have been able to do that today. Hebrews chapter 9, we're continuing to move through uh, this letter, specifically this section of the letter in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, where the author is really challenging his readers, Jewish Christians, who uh, we believe were being tempted to kind of go back to their old ways, go back to their old traditions. He's laid down this foundation. He's laid down this concrete understanding of the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all. And now in chapter 9 and 10, really focusing on this issue of sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice and what it means for us. And we're going to be reading here in just a moment, and it's going to be talking about, again, some of the Jewish temple stuff, some of the Jewish sacrifice stuff. And I acknowledge, I acknowledge there's a difficulty when we encounter this in the scriptures. We're not familiar with it. We don't often understand it. But I believe what he teaches us today is a truth, and again, it's from a, a shadow or, an, or a type that is then fulfilled in Jesus. He's going to teach us a couple of truths today that are powerful about eternal redemption in Jesus and eternal worship. Let's read Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Lot, lot to take in there, isn't it? Maybe a lot that seems very strange, a lot that seems very unfamiliar. We're going to walk through that a little bit today. I want us to see that primarily what he writes here today, our first point is this, that the old covenant with all of its regulations and all of its trappings and all of its sacrifices and all the work of the priests, the old covenant wasn't primarily about sin. You say, huh? I thought the old covenant was all about sin and atonement. What about sacrifices and offerings and the day of atonement? And all those things gave a provision for sin, yes. But ultimately, those things were about access to God and worship of God. I'm going to take you all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, the, the chapter that details the burning bush encounter of Moses. And it says this, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And he begins to have this conversation, this dialogue with, with God here in this burning bush. And God says, coming down to verse 12 of Exodus chapter 3, he gives him this promise, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And some of you who are biblical persons are going, wait a second, Mount Oreb? I thought they were at Mount Sinai when they came out and got the Ten Commandments. And Mount Oreb and Mount Sinai are the same. Let me give you an understanding. In Psalm 106, for example, the psalmist writes in lament about the fact that Israel created and worshipped the golden calf at Mount Oreb. But yet Exodus 32 tells us that occurred at Mount Sinai. Depending upon the tradition, depending upon the lineage, depending upon the focus from whoever was writing and whoever was recording, some said Oreb, some said Sinai. But regardless, the issue for Moses and the issue for Israel was in this mountain, at this mountain, they would have access to God and they would worship him. Let me read to you again verse 12. From Exodus chapter 3, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In the Old Testament, the word that is often translated serve in English for us is actually a word that details worship. In the, in the, in the Ten Commandments, when God gives them, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not serve or worship. You shall not bow down. It's all the same language. It's all the, it's all the same meaning that God and God alone is to be served, worshiped, honored, loved, praised, followed. God and God alone. And so the act of serving within the old covenant system, the action that the priests were doing, the action that the people were doing and bringing animals and bringing sacrifices, all of that had to do with access to God and had to do with serving or worshiping God. Robert Weber in his book, Ancient Future Worship, says it this way. What they, the sacrificial rite rituals of Hebrew worship, enact or begin is an approach 
to God. Without that, there is no access. Without that, there is no worship. And so we begin to get some clues and some insights here out of Hebrews 9, uh, verses 1 through 10, about these very things. Look again at what he says. Verse 1, even the first covenant had regulations for holiness. There were rules. There were regulations. There was preparation that had to be due. There was preparation that had to be done. God assigned it to different people in different ways and through different times, but there were things that had to be done in order to get this access. And verses 2 through 5 give us a little synopsis of that. A tent was prepared, verse 2, the first section, the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, a second section called the most holy place, and he writes what all it contained, the golden altar, altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, what the Ark of the Covenant attained. And he says there in verse 5 at the end, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, or we cannot now speak more in detail, perhaps your translation says. What does that mean? What does the author mean? Why does he lay out this little synopsis and then go, but we don't need to spend more time on this? Well, because they knew it. What he's describing to Jewish Christians, they understood. But to us, we don't have a very good knowledge of that, do we? We don't have a very good understanding of how that system works. And so uh, just as a, as a side of encouragement, we need to be studying Exodus more, Leviticus more, Numbers more, Deuteronomy more. We need to be understanding and studying and seeing what God was doing because all of that becomes fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And we need to understand what the purposes of those things were. And largely the purpose was access and serving or access and worship. Look at what he says in verses six and seven. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The daily work of the priests never stopped. The daily work of the priest never ceased. There was always something to do. There was always a sacrifice to be offered. There was always prayers to be brought before the Lord. There was always something that was happening in that first section. And in the second, the most holy of holies, the place where God had said to Israel, here's where I will meet you, into that place only one person ever got to go. And only once a year. And so just imagine you're here today and you consider yourself to be God's people. You consider yourself to be God's sons and daughters. Imagine if after you, as you entered the doors, we had somebody there saying, okay, now some of you can only hang out in the foyer. Some of you, you all need to go to the fellowship hall. A few of you can go upstairs. Some of you, a small handful, maybe... Ten of you can hang out in the back ten rows of the pews. Only one of you is allowed to come up here to the altar area. Even though you knew God loved you, even though you knew you were called God's people, that would not give you very much confidence, would it? That would not give you very much comfort 
to walk into a place and have somebody say, because of the way things are set up, here's where you are. In other words, you wouldn't have or you wouldn't believe that you really truly had full access to God. And then to also compound that and to realize that you're putting your trust for full access into the hands of another human being to hope that the priests who go into the first section and the one priest who once a year goes into the second is holy enough, good enough, has followed the regulations, the procedures, the preparations well enough that what he does on your behalf actually works. Not very confident, not very comforting. The work never stopped. And look again at what he says there about the high priest specifically, verse seven. Into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And some of you are reading that going, what, huh? Unintentional? I have never heard that before in my life. Well, you're going to hear it today. Unintentional and intentional sins. Several places in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant speak of it. I'm going to read today from Numbers 15, beginning at verse 27, to give us a picture of it. Numbers 15, verse 27 through verse 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally. To make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for he who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who lives among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, a phrase that means deliberately, willfully, for the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner or a stranger, reviles the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. And that person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity or his sin will be upon him. You say, what is an unintentional sin versus an intentional sin? Well, the most easy way I can explain it is this. Have you ever said something that harmed somebody unintentionally? You didn't have a, a mean spirit about it. or uh, Of course, in our day, maybe it's not that you said something. Maybe it's you posted something on your Facebook or your Instagram or your Twitter that somebody read and it harmed them, right? It was an unintentional sin. You didn't set out to be mean-spirited. You didn't set out, hopefully. <laughs> you didn't set out to, to hurt somebody's feelings. You said something, they harmed you. In an unintentional way, you sinned against them and you sinned against the Father. So in an unintentional way, sacrifice is made, sacrifice is brought, atonement is given. But the intentional sin, to use the same example, is where you intentionally want to harm someone. You say something, you write something, you post something, you communicate in some way, shape, or form and your intent to hurt. I want them to feel pain. God says for that intentional sin under the old covenant, there is no atonement. There is no forgiveness offered. 
because it is deliberate, it is intentional, it is high-handed, it is more specifically something that God has told his people not to do, and we in a moment essentially look at God and say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do it. And under the old covenant, there was no forgiveness, even on the day of atonement. For intentional sin. Look, if you, if you happen to turn to Numbers 15, you didn't have to, but if you did, follow along with me at verse 32. We just have that phrase, that section where he talked about unintentional, intentional sins. And listen to what happens, verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Uh-oh. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been clear, it made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp, stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded. I remember the first time I read that and I thought, what? For picking up sticks on the Sabbath? And what was revealed to me through study and through the power of the Holy Spirit was that that's how clearly and that's how precisely and that's how important God's commands are made to us. He had just stipulated to the people an unintentional sin, there's coverage for but when you deliberately defy me, whether you think it's fair, whether you think it's just, whether you think it's something that's meaningful or something that's insignificant like picking up sticks, when you intentionally defy me, there is no forgiveness. There is no atonement made available. You are cut off. And sometimes it was cut off in this manner where the man was put to death. Sometimes it was cut off in a manner where they were just simply removed from the community. Listen to what verses 8 through 10 tell us about all this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section still stands, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what the author tells his audience and tells us is that underneath this system, yes, there was some provision made, and yes, there were some offerings, and yes, there were some sacrifices, and yes, there was the work of the priest, but even in situations where it had some effect, it didn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We've seen this word perfect in Hebrews before. I've told you it means complete or to make whole. And so we understand that what he's telling us is that all these things that were instituted never perfected the conscience. What is the conscience? Sometimes uh, Christians like to get in fights about, well, is it the conscience or is it the Holy Spirit? Well, okay, let's deal with that for a second, okay? Let's deal with the reality that the biblical word for conscience here means the psychological faculty or the ability of the mind to distinguish between right or wrong, bringing either comfort or guilt. That the conscience is this ability that we have in our mind to distinguish between right or wrong. 
And it either brings us comfort or it brings us guilt. And so the purpose of what he's writing here in Hebrews 9 is to say that all of this, even though it alleviated some, even though it brought some access to God, wasn't enough to complete, to make whole our conscience before God. This is the way Paul writes about conscience in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, being the law of Moses, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have it. And listen to what he says. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And the conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's saying to his Jewish part of his audience there in Romans at that point, listen, you understand, you have the law. You have it written and recorded. You have rabbis and teachers and disciples who've been walking you through. But let me point you to Gentiles. Let me point you to those who do not have the law. And let me point you to their life. And what their life shows us is that they have an inner law written upon their hearts. They have a conscience that is governed by what is inside. That is an immediate pointing back to the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about, the writer of Hebrews had previously just mentioned. What what would you like me to switch to? Not today, Satan. You're not going to interrupt it. You say Satan works in technology? Yeah. Paul writes and says, they don't have the external regulations. They don't have all the things that you have, Jews, but what they have is much greater. It is written upon their hearts. Our applications today are this. We, we don't have all the temple regulations. We don't have all the priesthood. We don't have all that stuff to deal with, right? But would you agree with me that we still have this conscience issue? That if we were honest, probably more Sundays than not, we wake up on a Sunday morning and begin our preparations to come in church, and we think, ooh, should I go? Because we recall Monday or Wednesday night or Saturday morning. We bring to mind where our conscience attacks us, where the enemy deceives us. Look at the remedy for it. There's no perfect conscience through the law, but look what he says beginning verse 11. But when Christ... I would tell you that depending on your translations, some of the greatest words in Scripture are words or phrases or paragraphs that begin, but God, but Jesus, but when Christ. Because what that is is a trigger to us. It's a sign to us to say, well, all that we just read doesn't give us much comfort. All that we just read doesn't give us much confidence. Oh, but there's something better? There's something greater. 
There's something more powerful than what I just read? Yes, there is. Read it along with me, if you will. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I want to stop there for just a second. What does it mean to have an eternal redemption? It means that when you have trusted and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is never taken away from you. And it's never taken away from you, not because you or I did good things to achieve it, and it's never taken away from you, not because you and I continue to do good things to keep it. It's never taken away from you because Christ has entered into the most holy place, not a place in a tabernacle, a tent, or a temple, but in the very presence of God. He has passed through the heavenlies. He is seated with him at the right hand, having accomplished the work. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about that there's this symbolic sort of understanding that Christ is continually applying his blood to the mercy seat. That that was what happened on the day of atonement, that Christ is continually doing that for us. He's continually doing that for us because we continually need it. And because he is continually, symbolically, spiritually applying his blood shed at the cross onto the mercy seat, we have eternal redemption. Everybody loves a good redemption story, don't they? I remember uh, in the 80s, one of my favorite rock bands, Def Leppard. Their drummer had a horrific car accident where he lost his left arm. And I remember watching MTV because they still played music videos and um, occasionally they'd have news. But I remember watching the news reports and all the reports coming out of the music industry. Oh, he's never going to be able to drum again. I mean, he's lost one of his arms. Like anybody that knows anything about drumming knows you need two arms, right? And he and some other guys designed this drum kit that added four different foot pedals to take the place of all of the things that he normally would have hit with his left arm, and he began to drum again using one arm and both feet. What a redemptive story, wasn't it? Like at the end of his rope, seemingly having everything taken away from him, and then Yet something comes along and his life is redeemed. We, we love good redemption stories. We love it with an athlete makes a mistake at the first of the game and then comes back to clinch the game winner somehow. We love that stuff, right? Here's the problem. We love that stuff, but that wasn't possible for you and me. You and me could not. We, we could not redeem ourselves. There was no ninth inning heroics for us. There was no manipulating and making a new way for us. We were done. But when Christ passed through into the most holy place, passed through into the presence of God, having done so by his own blood, he secured for us an eternal redemption. Look at what it says as we begin to close there in verses 13 and 14. What does that eternal redemption do for us? He says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or cleanse the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
Purify our conscience from dead works to serve, or remember that word serve means to worship the living God. How do you get past the Sunday morning, I don't know if I ought to come? The blood of Jesus. How do you get past the, well, I don't really know if I could fulfill that capacity or position or, or teaching in our church, that, that, that spot that they need? Blood of Jesus. How do you receive and walk in the forgiveness that God has given us? The, the blood of Jesus. How do you offer forgiveness and, and give it to others freely because it's been given to you? The blood of Jesus. He's given us an eternal redemption, and that eternal redemption gives us a purified conscience. And, and understand, having a pure conscience is not having a license or the freedom to continue to willfully sin. That is a very immature way to look at grace. Having a pure conscience means that even on my worst day and your worst day, when we're moved to come to a church service or we're moved just in our homes or in our cars to consider God and maybe to go to him in a moment of prayer and a moment of worship and we have that battle with, he's not going to hear you, you're not good enough, don't you remember what you did yesterday? The purified conscience says, oh, but wait, Jesus has given me access. Jesus has made me clean. Jesus has set me up for worship, for serving. In the Old Testament, largely, the issue of serving and worship really revolved around the priests and the work that they did. But in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says it this way. Be transformed. Don't be conformed any longer to the ways of the world. Be transformed by your mind, by your body, by your soul. And in doing so, offer yourselves as an act of worship, a sacrificial worship of your life. Paul moves serving in the temple or tabernacle, serving that only just a few could do. Paul moves it to say, all who are in Jesus, now with a full access and now with a clear, pure conscience, give your whole self to him. Do you desire a clear conscience? Do you desire a full access to God? Do you desire the, the power, the ability, the gift to be able to not only be forgiven of your sins, but be freed of your sins? When Jesus. He's accomplished that for you. He's accomplished that for me. The question is, how do we use it? Do we use it to serve and to worship him and him alone? Or do we use it for a license to continually go our own way? He is entered once for all, for all who would believe. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.